By the end of 1899, the Adepti Menores of both the Isis Urania Temple in London and the Amen Ra Temple in Edinburgh had become extremely dissatisfied with the regime of Mathers, whose increasing autocracy and growing friendship with Frater Perdurabo, Alistair Crowley, caused them great concern. They were also anxious to make their own contacts with the Third Order, instead of relying exclusively on the intermediacy of McGregor Mathers. In addition to this, personal disagreements were continually arising in the Isis Urania temple. Florence Farr described them as an astral jar, which seemed to have been caused by tension between members of the Sphere, a secret society within the Order, and the rest of the Adepti Minores. At the end of the year, the London officials administered a deliberate rebuff to Mathers by refusing to initiate his friend Crowley as an adept minor, a grade to which he was formally entitled by reason of his successful completion of the course of work enjoined on members of the Outer Order on the grounds of his moral turpitude. Crowley was refused details of the charges against him. In fact, the London Adepti had heard that he was a homosexual, and he hurried off to Paris, where Mathers displayed his complete disregard for the opinions of the Isis Urania chiefs by initiating Crowley in the Ahathor Temple on January 16, 1900. Crowley then made a leisurely return to London and applied to Miss Cracknell, the acting secretary of Isis Urania, for those manuscripts to which he was now entitled. She told him that she would arrange for them to be sent to him in due course, and Crowley, after a brief visit to Cambridge, returned to Bolskine, his Scottish home, where he arrived on February 7th and began to prepare to undertake the operations of Abermellon magic. The London Adepti regarded Crowley's initiation as the last straw. Florence Farr, who had already expressed the opinion that the London Temple should be closed down, wrote to Mathers telling him that she wished to resign as his London representative, but was willing to carry on temporarily until a successor could be found. Mathers, suspicious that Wynne Westcott was secretly responsible for his troubles, replied on February 16th in terms that shocked and amazed the recipient of his letter. This is the letter. Now, with regard to the second order, it would be with the very greatest regret, both for my personal regard for you, as well as the occult standpoint, that I should receive your resignation as my representative in the second order in London. But I cannot let you form a combination to make a schism therein with the idea of working secretly or avowedly under Sapier Audi, under the mistaken impression that he received an epitome of the second order work from G.H. Sower Dominabiter Astris. This is the magical model of um, Anna Springle. For this forces me to tell you plainly and understand me well, I can prove to the hilt every word I say here and more. And were I confronted with S.A., I would say the same though for the sake of the order and for the circumstances that it would mean so deadly a blow to S.A.'s reputation, I entreat you to keep the secrets from the order for the present, at least though you are at perfect liberty to show him this, if you think fit, after mature consideration. He has never been at any time either in personal or written communication with the secret chiefs of the third order. 
he having himself forged or procured to be forged the professed correspondence between him and them and my tongue having been tied all these years by a previous oath of secrecy to him demanded by him from me before showing me what he had done or caused to be done or both you must comprehend from what little i say here the extreme gravity of such a matter and again i ask you for both his sake and that of the order do not force me to go further into the subject. In spite of these statements, Mather certainly believed in the real existence of Anna Sprangle, for he concluded his letter by stating, erroneously, that she was with him in Paris. The lady concerned was in fact Madame Horos, an unsavory adventuress who had picked up a certain amount of information about the Golden Dawn from some Americans, who had been initiated in the Ahathor temple and who managed to temporarily convince Mathers that she was the real Anna Sprangle by repeating to him details of a private conversation he had with Madame Blavatsky many years before. It was not long before Mathers realized the nature of the fraud and after stealing some of his property, she decamped to London where she carried out some peculiarly nasty pseudo-occult sexual rites in Gower Street and was ultimately sentenced to a period of penal servitude. Florence Farr considered her chief's letter for some days and then wrote to Westcott requesting an explanation of and a reply to Mather's charges. Westcott replied in a surprisingly mild tone. He denied the accuracy of the charge of forgery, but said he could not prove it to be false as his witnesses were dead. By this time, the London Adepti, who had been informed of the nature of Mather's letter by its recipient, had decided that the matter must be further investigated, and to this end, on March 3rd, they elected a seven-strong committee which wrote to Frater, SRMD, asking for proof of his allegations. Mather sent an immediate and fierce reply. He declined to produce any proof, refused to acknowledge the London Committee, and pointed out that as Chief of the Second Order, he was responsible to only the Third Order. He followed this up by dismissing Florence Farr from her position as his London representative on March 23rd, to which the London Adepti responded by sending him a defiant message on the following day and calling a general meeting of the Second Order for March 29th. At this general meeting, the Second Order voted, with only five exceptions, to depose their chief from his headship and to expel him from the Order. Mathers reacted to this by writing to the rebels, threatening them with a magical current of hostile will. I tell you plainly that, that were it possible to remove me from my place as visible head of our order, the which cannot be without my consent because of certain magical links, you would find nothing but disruption and trouble fall upon you until you expiated so severe a karma as that of opposing a current scent at the end of a century to regenerate a planet. And for the first time since I have been connected with the order, I shall formulate my request to the highest chiefs for the punitive current to be prepared, to be directed against those who rebel should they consider it advisable. Meanwhile, at the end of March, Sora Diodate, Mrs. Dorothea Hunter, one of the order's clairvoyants, who seems to have taken over secretaryship of the Isis Urania, 
had written to Crowley refusing him any manuscripts, telling him that Isis Urania did not recognize his membership of the Second Order and informing him of the expulsion of Mathers. Crowley immediately sent a letter to Paris, offering his, service, his, his services to Mathers, of whom he was at that date an almost fanatical disciple. And after a disturbed night's sleep, he departed to London in order to investigate the situation at first hand. He found little to cheer him. The vault of the adepts was locked against him, and those adepti to, to whom he managed to talk seemed either hostile or despondent. His old friend Julian Baker, for example, said that the Second Order had no obligation to a forger and could continue on its own. In any case, the documents were all wrought, particularly Z2. Soon, however, Crowley heard from Mathers that his services had been accepted and he hurried off to Paris, where he arrived on April 9th to confer with his chief. He had already concocted a plan which, he felt sure, would bring the revolting members to their senses and, after a long talk, Mathers gave a substantial approval to Crowley's proposals. Some three days later, Crowley was given detailed instructions on how to act in London, together with much magical advice. His orders included a detailed lists of new chiefs for Isis Urania. The loyal five were to be rewarded. B instructions to seize the premises of the order and the vault of the adepts using legal processes should these be required. C the outline of a new warrant for the London temple, which Mathers, the only link with the secret chiefs, would sign in due course. D instructions to interview each adept separately and ask various questions, the answers to which would decide whether that adept was to be expelled from the order or admitted to the reconstructed Isis Urania temple. E, much magical advice on how to arrange the interviews so that they would be successful. For instance, symbols of Saturn were to be over the door so that those who pass come under the terror of Saturn. F, Methods of dealing with Madame Horos, the false Anna Sprangle, should she be encountered. The arrival of Crowley in London, where he was regarded by the majority of the London Adepti as, in the words of W.B. Yeats, an unspeakable mad person, caused considerable alarm amongst the rebels, and they resorted to an occult attack upon him which came very near to black magic. Yeats described this attack in a letter to his fellow occultist and poet, A.E. George Russell. According to Yeats, two or three of the order's thaumaturgists called up one of Crowley's mistresses and told her to leave him, and some two days later she agreed to go to Scotland Yard and give evidence of, quote, torture and medieval iniquity, end quote. Crowley's diary gives quite a different account of this magical attack. His rose cross whitened, his rubber Macintosh burst into flames, and, quote, in the morning, I was very badly obsessed and entirely lost my temper utterly without reason or justification. Five times, at least, horses have bolted at the sight of me, end quote. Crowley seems to have decided that Frater de Profundis ad Lucem, F.L. Gardner, was responsible for these unpleasant experiences and attempted to evoke Typhon's set against him. Unsuccessfully, apparently, for Gardner was none the worse for Crowley's efforts. As none of the rebels evinced the slightest desire to have an interview with Crowley, he resolved on more direct methods and, 
having hired some checkers out at a public house in Leicester Square, seized the vaults. The second order seized it back again with the aid of the Metropolitan Police and, for good measure, managed to get one of Crowley's creditors to issue a writ against him. Crowley had had enough and retired from the struggle, leaving the second order to its own devices. So Francis King here in his book, uh, Modern Ritual Magic, and this is chapter seven called Revolt, um, doesn't mention in this brief synopsis of what happened uh, at the temple on Blythe Road that Crowley arrived wearing a black mask and a kilt with these um, quote unquote checkers out. And when they ampled the building, um, there was a physical altercation and it, it of course got violent. And at one point, uh, Yates literally kicked Crowley down the stairs. Meanwhile, in Paris, Mathers had taken a large packet of dried peas and baptized each one by the magical name of one of the rebels. Then, by the formula of the great Enochian tablet of spirit, he evoked the forces of Beelzebub and Typhon Set, and, while shaking the peas in a sieve, called upon those mighty devils to fall upon his enemies so that they might fall upon and confound each other with quarrels and continual disturbance. If one could use the argument of post hoc propter hoc, this was one of the most successful curses of all time, for, as we shall see, almost immediately violent disagreements began to arise within the hitherto united ranks of the rebels. Now, of course, Crowley being Crowley, his fanatical loyalty to Mathers didn't last forever. So they ended up having a falling out. And uh, briefly in chapter 12 of the same book, um, there's a little um, explanation about that. At first, his hopes were centered on Crowley, but these were blighted by a violent quarrel resulting from the latter's extended stay in the Far East temporary conversion to Orthodox Hinyana Buddhism and attempts to get Mathers to take up the same religious position. After this quarrel, all Crowley's previous admiration for his chief seems to have turned to hatred. In May 1904, we find him writing in his notebook, quote, a special task find a man who can go to entrap Mathers. Let him read La Vie, then go, end quote. In the following summer, he evoked Beelzebub to consecrate talismans designed to be used against the Golden Dawn. And in the same year, he claimed that Mathers was obsessed by Abermelon demons and that Mr. and Mrs. Mathers were under the control of Madame Horos and her husband. Um, now, in defense of Crowley, uh, when it comes to him invoking Beelzebub to consecrate talismans to be used against the gold dawn. Um, it should be stated that he looked upon these activities as being merely self-defense, for he believed, probably quite rightly, that Mathers was trying to use black magic against him. When Crowley's bloodhounds suddenly died, he attributed their sudden demise to the activities of Mathers. 
Now, uh, quickly, uh, Richard Cavendish in his book, The Black Arts, uh, writes about this falling out between Crowley and Mathers as well. Mathers outraged, sent a vampire to attack him, but Crowley, quote, smote her with her own current of evil, end quote, and defeated her. The struggle was waged hotly on both sides. Mathers succeeded in striking Crowley's entire pack of bloodhounds dead at one blow and caused Crowley's servant to go mad and tried to kill Mrs. Crowley. The servant had to be overpowered with a salmon gaff. In reply, Crowley summoned up the demon Beelzebub and 49 attendant devils and sent them off to chastise, chastise Mathers in Paris. So, in conclusion, it's never a dull moment when you have a room full of adepts, especially with when one of them is a character like Crowley. Thanks for listening, everyone.